Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Previously on Patient Zero. So how old were you at this point? I was about 11 or 12, taking up to 16 aspirin a day, which I remember I actually got toxic from it and had ringing in my ears at one point and had to have the, the dose decrease. You know, and so I remember when that happened, just feeling like, you know, this kid just can't catch a break. I felt that there was some something there, but the medical profession said, well, there is no such disease that, that exists that has the number of symptoms that you are exhibiting. Mr. Pop. It's hard to know what normal is. You know, I, you when you grow up, in your entire teen years, you're suffering from a disease that's not been treated. Um, you know, when you get into your 20s, you don't know what, you know, what a, what a normal body should feel like. For Polly Murray, the woman from Connecticut who helped bring attention to Lyme disease, the campaign to bring awareness to Lyme was a choice. But for the rest of the Murray family, it was more like a natural disaster, one they would have preferred to forget, one that would continue to disrupt their lives for years to come. And Polly's youngest son, Todd, he suffered the most. But yeah, there was a feeling of um, of being left behind. And I also, I also, and I'm not sure if this is related to Lyme disease or taking high-dose aspirin, but I feel like my, I feel like my growth was stunted for whatever reason. To be clear, Todd was healthy enough to function, bright enough to do well in class, and eventually get into medical school. But even after the years of swollen joints subsided and Lyme disease had finally been given a name, he still didn't feel quite right. Fluency of speech, um, you know, words coming out backwards, the beginning of words coming out switched, um, you know, problems with concentration, problems with short-term memory. Um, You know, can I say 100%? I mean, some of these things are probably age-related, but I I think I experienced them, um, you know, when I was much younger than they, they should have happened. When eventually um, they, they figured out that it was a bacteria and identified the bacteria, did, did you ever get called back for treatment? No, I didn't. I was, uh, I was in college at that time, and I, I think I remember my mom telling me they had you know, discovered this bacterium. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do harbor a little bit of perhaps resentment and perhaps a little bit of anger that you know nobody really thought to to think, okay, this is a bacterial disease, and nobody thought, oh, maybe we should go back and make sure these people are treated. Todd did eventually get treated. But the uncertainty that comes from his specific variety of medical history, it's enough to make a person paranoid. Because even if the Lyme was gone, the ghost remained. This is from our first interview over the phone. I don't know, it's interesting when I, when I do an interview and I hear myself talking and, you know, I notice that I have... Um, word-finding difficulties. And, 
I can't help but think that that is related to <laughs> going back to my initial infection so many years ago. Yeah, it just feels like a, a bit of a curse. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, I've often used that exact word, uh, you know, that line was kind of a curse on my life in that, in that sense. A curse. A ghost. Not surprisingly, Todd is pretty open to some of the ideas that surround chronic Lyme disease. The idea that the Lyme bacteria can persist in your body even after treatment for years, that its symptoms can be deceptive, and even the controversial central tenet of the chronic Lyme community, that patients might require multiple rounds of long-term antibiotics. But Todd has a unique perspective on the issue, because today he is a doctor of emergency medicine practicing in Massachusetts. There also clearly are a subset of patients who, you know, may or may not have actually had Lyme disease, but are convinced that everything that's wrong in their life is due to Lyme disease and, you know, who literally are antibiotic dependent, uh, you know, from a psychiatric point of view. And, you know, as soon as the antibiotic is stopped, I mean, literally, you know, I've, I've had people show up in the ER saying my symptoms are back and they just stopped the antibiotics at 24 hours before. And, I, you know, I just know that this is... This is more of a psychiatric phenomenon. Even Todd Murray, one of the first diagnosed cases of this epidemic, whose own Lyme disease went untreated for many years, can see that some patients are clinging to a chronic Lyme diagnosis when they might have other problems. Now, I mean, everybody, everybody can be a little different, but, you know, sometimes I feel like telling my patients, look, if anybody knows what chronic Lyme disease is, you know, it's me. If anybody knows what all the symptoms should be, then it's me. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating. For the droves of people who get treated quickly, Lyme disease can be no big deal. But for those who don't, Lyme can transform lives in dramatic ways, sowing discord and confusion, causing a variety of nasty symptoms, and in very rare cases, ending in death. I'm Taylor Quimby. In this episode, Complications. Why is it so hard to know even the basics? Do you have it or don't you? Left unchecked, where can Lyme go in your body? What are all the symptoms? And how has all this uncertainty gotten us to where we are today? This is where Lyme history meets Lyme present. This is where we see that even as science advances, questions remain. This is Patient Zero. If you can, I want you to pause the podcast and grab a piece of paper and a pencil. If you're busy, just use your imagination. Ready? First, I want you to draw a big box. And then inside, draw the outline of a bell. When doctors in training first start shadowing licensed physicians, they're often in for an unnerving surprise. Diseases do not always appear the way they do in medical textbooks. They appear on a bell curve. 
Imagine that the bell in front of you represents all of the people with Lyme disease. Most of them are in the center of the bell, the tallest part. These are the people who experience something close to the version of a disease that students read about in medical textbooks, a bullseye rash, a flu-like illness. Now, draw two vertical lines on either side of the bell's center. You should have cut off the sides of the bell so they look like little skateboard ramps. On the left side of the curve, near the bottom edge of the bell, are the patients who for some reason just don't get very sick. They might have such mild symptoms that doctors confuse Lyme disease for something minor. And on the right side are the patients that get much, much sicker. People who have increasingly strange symptoms that are either so rare they don't even wind up in the textbooks, or unusual enough to be statistically unlikely. When healthy people are thinking about something, the common cold for example, they're not really thinking about the edges of the bell. Chances are, you're going to get better in a couple weeks. But should you miss Lyme disease in a patient on the left-hand side, someone who doesn't really get sick, or center of the bell, someone who gets sick but doctors just think it's a flu or something, they're liable to wind up moving further and further over to the right. And it's the right side where people really fall through the cracks. My Lyme story started on June 26, 2006, when I developed terrible neck pain that settled behind and under my right ear. A couple of days after it started, my wife noticed that my mouth wasn't moving right when I spoke. I went to urgent care. They said they couldn't rule out the possibility that I was having a stroke, and they sent me to the ER immediately. At the ER, they said I wasn't having a stroke after doing some tests, but couldn't figure out what the problem was, except that they said I was on my way to Bell's palsy. They were right. The next morning, I couldn't open my right eye, and the right side of my face was totally paralyzed. Remember the last episode? In the first few days of infection, the Lyme disease pathogen is motoring away from the tick bite. That's the early localized stage of Lyme disease, characterized most often with some form of bullseye rash and flu-like symptoms. But if the bacteria gets out of your skin and into your bloodstream, that's when these more frightening, more confusing set of symptoms start to appear. It's the disseminated stage, as in the bacteria has spread or disseminated throughout the body. It can wind up back in your skin, causing multiple rashes all over your body. It can wind up in your joints and cause pain and swelling. It can wind up in your nerves and cause tingling, pain, numbness, or weakness in the arms and legs. Or it can wind up in a nerve in your face and cause Bell's palsy, like it did in the case of the anonymous listener who sent in their story. And then they started me on a one-month course of intravenous antibiotics. My symptoms mostly cleared up over the next two to three weeks. About 9% of confirmed Lyme patients between 2001 and 2015 had Bell's palsy. It's treatable, but it can leave permanent damage. Uh, the most significant is that the right side of my face doesn't work quite right. Uh, those who know me uh, can tell. This is why patients who don't get classic middle-of-the-bell curve symptoms, a flu and a bullseye, are at real risk. If you don't get diagnosed early, you can skip right to the bad stuff. My Lyme story began when I was 15, working at my first job, and I felt unbelievably tired. Pain, uh, severe headache, sensitivity to sound and light, and uh, raised 
pink leopard spots all over my torso that didn't itch or hurt. And I remember one doctor, like, kind of jokingly, because I think they thought I was faking it because I was, like, you know, a teenage girl, first week of summer vacation, my first job ever, and I'm like, oh, I'm so tired, I can't go to work. They're like, okay, it sounds like bacterial meningitis, so either it's too late or it's not bacterial meningitis, so go home. (laughs) The symptoms were pretty severe, and my mother was pretty insistent that they start a round of doxycycline. Uh, After about 24 hours, my symptoms were, I think, completely gone. And the, the test came back positive? Yes. Yeah. If the Lyme pathogen snakes its way into your skull... It can cause inflammation in the meninges. That's the area surrounding your brain. And swelling there can cause excruciating head and neck pain. Less than 2% of confirmed cases between 2001 and 2015 reported meningitis. Even further on the bell curve are symptoms associated with sight. Lyme can burrow inside the optic nerve. And inflammation there can cause double vision, or in very rare cases, blindness. And most notably, Lyme can squeeze in between the cardiac tissues in your heart and slow the electrical signal that makes it beat correctly. Making up just 1% of confirmed U.S. Lyme cases between 2008 and 2017, it's a rare complication of Lyme. But frankly, it's the one that can kill you. Since 1985, the CDC has tracked nine deaths in the medical literature to heart infections associated with Lyme disease. Specifically, this complication is called Lyme carditis. And notably, people who get it are less likely to have gotten a bullseye rash. A quick word about these statistics. They're all taken from studies that do not apply universally throughout the globe and for all time. There are big differences in rates of various Lyme symptoms in the U.S. versus in Europe, where the primary species of pathogen that causes Lyme disease is slightly different than the one we see here. And these statistics have changed and will continue to change over time. In other words, these are averages, big ballpark numbers, and it's really hard to know what's happening in every patient's body. A famous epidemiologist named William Farr once said, the death rate is a fact. Everything else is an inference. Rare as they are, symptoms like Bell's palsy and Lyme carditis share an important quality. They are objective symptoms, as in they can be measured using tools and tests, through an electrocardiogram or physical exam. As we move further along the bell curve and deeper into the brain, things get trickier. So there are rare manifestations of Lyme disease. Stroke was another example, and what's what's that from? That's most likely from inflammation uh, in the arteries feeding the brain. And if you get inflammation and then you get occlusion, uh, then you get a stroke. This is Brian Fallon, director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Diseases Research Center at Columbia University Medical Center. One of the geographical differences you'll see in Lyme disease is that the North American version of Lyme is more likely to cause arthritis, and the European version is more likely to cause something particularly scary-sounding neuroborreliosis, which translates to Lyme disease in the nervous system and brain. Malaise, uh, slowed cognition, word-finding problems. Fluency of speech, um, you know, words coming out backwards, the beginning of words coming out switch. 
you know, problems with concentration, problems with short In 2013, country music legend Chris Christofferson said in an interview on Fox News that his memory was slipping. And a few years later, in 2016... A shocking misdiagnosis. Iconic singer and actor Chris Christofferson originally told by doctors that his memory loss was due to Alzheimer's or dementia. But it turns out it was actually caused by undiagnosed and untreated Lyme disease. How in the world does that happen? Let's ask our Fox News Medical 18 doctor, Dr. Mark Lord, hey, Dr. help me, Jesus. I've wasted it so Neuroborreliosis can be debilitating, in part because tracing symptoms directly to the Lyme infection is really hard, and subjective symptoms like these are more likely to get misdiagnosed. Unfortunately, those patients then would go on to um, have untreated Lyme disease for many months until someone finally decided, okay, I'm going to try a course of treatment, see if it helps you, and sometimes it would help those patients. All of these different symptoms I've mentioned, part of what makes them so frightening, I think, is that they seem disconnected. But there is one thing that pretty much unites them all. Inflammation. Swelling. If you don't have inflammation, if you don't have an inflammatory response to the spirochete, you're not going to have symptoms. Here's a tip that's helped me navigate Lyme disease. Itis is the medical suffix that means inflammation and swelling. So meningitis is inflammation of the meninges. Carditis is inflammation of cardiac tissue, heart muscle. Arthritis means inflammation of the joints. I was diagnosed with terminal bonitis. Bonitis? Actually, inflammation of the bones is called osteomyelitis, but you get the idea. My bones! (gasps) Oh my God, his bonitis! The point is, symptoms of Lyme are not caused by some sort of toxin released by the bacteria, like cholera, or because the virus is actively killing your cells, like Ebola. In Lyme disease, the symptoms are caused by your own immune system as it attempts to hunt down and fight off the invaders. In a way, it's collateral damage. And inflammation might just be the key to one of the biggest mysteries in Lyme disease. One last constellation of symptoms, and one that I can honestly say we don't understand much at all. Something called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome is a proposed case definition that seeks to describe the 10 to 20% of Lyme patients that continue to have symptoms after treatment. These symptoms do not include things like Lyme carditis and Bell's palsy, which typically disappear after antibiotics and would be an indication that the infection hasn't been cleared. Rather, these are symptoms like fatigue, general muscle and joint pain, cognitive impairment, and depression. The stuff that can be caused by a lot of maladies, and the sort of things that aren't easy to explain to your family or your boss. It's a condition that can take months, even years, to resolve. There are theories about what causes post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, and we'll talk more about it in a later episode. But for the time being, I'll just say this. If forced to answer the question, why do some Lyme patients still have symptoms after treatment? The only responsible answer is, we don't really know. Everything else is an inference.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Here's a simple question with a really, really complicated answer. How do you know you have Lyme disease? Not how do you know if you've ever had it, but how do you know the bacteria is in your body right now? Next tonight, an end of the summer story. People returning from vacations may be bringing home more than a tan and some postcards. Their souvenir, Lyme disease. Kwame Holman has more about the problems in the... Towards the tail end of 1994, Dr. Alan Steer, the rheumatologist who first investigated Lyme disease, along with scientists from the CDC and other government agencies, met in Dearborn, Michigan. Like most scientific meetings, the gathering was given a name, designed to communicate its historic magnitude and importance. It was called the Second National Conference on Serological Testing of Lyme Disease. Okay, so the name's not great, but they were there to solve a very serious problem that had cropped up with the Lyme disease laboratory tests. Namely, that they were terrible. Mary Bronneman concluded the Lyme test was useless. It doesn't matter whether you have a positive titer or not. It means nothing. The important thing is just to think, if you're sick, if you're feeling... uh, uh, washed out, if you're feeling arthritis, if you're getting headaches, if you're getting God knows what, assume it's Lyme disease and don't worry about the test. I would say the first um, diagnostic tests that came out for Lyme disease were probably in the early to mid-1980s. So there wasn't a lot of standardization with the early uh, diagnostic assays for, for Lyme disease. This is Dr. Ellie Thiel. She directs the Infectious Disease Serology Lab at Mayo Clinic. And she had my favorite answer to the what did you have for breakfast question. I think I had a hard-boiled egg, watermelon, and feta cheese. Oh, that's a, that's a cool breakfast. That's a very strange breakfast. I like it, though. I, you know, it's the it's breakfast like... you eat when you have two kids. Do you ever wonder why, when you go to the doctor, sometimes they take blood, and other times they take samples with a cotton swab? When a physician suspects that you have strep throat, for example, they swab it. And then they try and culture or grow that strep bacteria directly in a laboratory. If it grows, great. Now you know for sure you have strep throat. But what about things like the Lyme pathogen that don't grow easily, quickly, or reliably? That's where serology comes in. Tiny particles called antibodies are being produced and poured into his bloodstream. Right, so for serology, again, we're detecting the immune response to the infection. We're not actually detecting the bacteria or the fungus itself. When doctors take your blood, they're looking for clues, indirect evidence that you're sick. They can't see the actual pathogen. Instead, they're looking at your antibodies, proof that your body is fighting an infection. But antibody tests have drawbacks. For one, some antibodies last in your system for years, decades even. He now has a surplus of antibodies that will aid him to resist future attacks of the same disease. If you ever had chickenpox as a kid, your blood would test positive for antibodies to chickenpox. But that doesn't mean you're actively infected. Another problem with serology 
is the issue of subjectivity. Can you tell me what you mean by subjectivity? Well, um, for example, for the... Some of the tests used to diagnose Lyme disease are read visually, as in a technician literally has to look at the sample and interpret whether or not it's positive. It's not like a numerical test that has a cutoff for a pass or fail. It's more like one of those paper strips that are used to test the acidity in pools. You look through a microscope and um, using your, your eye determine um, how much uh, fluorescence there is in, on, the, on the slide for the patient sample. You mean how much so it's like glowing? How much it's glowing, right. When you get your blood drawn, it feels so concrete. A yes or no, black or white. But you pull back the curtain and you realize there's no fancy machine back there that spits out a result. No wizard brewing up some magical solution to your illness. Just a person whose judgment you've got to trust. Depending on the technologist reading the slide, one person may call it um, negative. Another person might call it positive. There are some other reasons why the tests aren't perfect. Lyme antibodies can look a lot like antibodies to other diseases, mono, for example. So if you have mono, you might test positive for Lyme incorrectly. And for those reasons and more, people back in the 80s and 90s did not trust the tests. And studies showed they had a reason not to. So it was in 1992, a study basically sent out... I believe it was nine or ten samples, the same um, samples, to 45 or so different laboratories. They were testing the labs against one another to see who was doing a good job. So whether or not the laboratory got the answer right varied anywhere from 45 percent to 100 percent, um, meaning that, you know, for, for some laboratories, they only got 45 percent of the samples um, correct. In the same study, they also took single samples, split them up into multiple parts, and sent them to the same labs multiple times to see if they were diagnosing Lyme disease consistently. And they found that some labs um, could not, meaning that one time they called the sample positive, another time they called that same sample negative. Dr. Alan Steer, the original Lyme investigator, was at this point chief of rheumatology at Tufts. He had described the symptoms of untreated Lyme as quote-unquote chronic. He had co-authored papers on neurological symptoms and Lyme carditis. He had warned in his media appearances that there was much more to learn. I think that considerably more than five years may be needed to try to really understand how... But he was worried that Lyme had become a trendy diagnosis, that the gate to get in to get diagnosed was too wide. Whereas patients were worried about false negatives. I had asked them right along, is it possible this is Lyme? He and other doctors were worried about false positives. Many patients that we see are told they have Lyme disease based on a poor laboratory test, treated for Lyme disease when they really don't have it. The government is now pumping money into developing a better blood test. A little late, experts say, but a recognition that what was once a regional problem is now a national one. Edie Magnus, CBS News, New York. Which brings us back to 1994 and that big fancy meeting, the Second National Conference on Serological Testing of Lyme Disease in Dearborn, Michigan. They came up with a standardized approach to diagnostic testing for, uh, for Lyme disease. So they agreed on the methods that were acceptable, um, as well as the uh, interpretive criteria that should be used. Um, so what to call positive, if you will, and what, what to call negative. 
And that was that. The case was finally closed, and since then, not a single patient or doctor has ever complained about the accuracy of the Lyme tests. Oh, um, oh, hold on. Yeah, that's not right. They said they couldn't test me, so they uh, wouldn't be sure if I had Lyme disease because the test only tests you for antibodies, which I already had because I had it before. The first Lyme test came back negative, but a week later, it came back positive. So at the time, you couldn't get that test on Martha's Vineyard without testing positive on a different test. It was a complicated process. Um, All the tests are negative, straight across the board. Negative, 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 negative. Needless to say, the standardized approach decided in Michigan, called the Dearborn Criteria, hasn't put questions about testing to bed. Partly because the criteria, while more accurate, are still confusing for patients. And a serious drawback of the testing hasn't been fixed. For the first few weeks of infection, patients have not developed antibodies for Lyme disease yet. And because of that, the tests for early Lyme are not good. If you've had the infection for a few weeks, they're much more dependable. But if you are just bit, there is no good test. Um, And for example, in patients that have an erythema migraines rash, um, we flat out state to not perform any sort of serologic testing because you're going to be negative. The changes to the testing in 1995 were not welcomed by all. The tests were generally more conservative about who was positive, and that left a lot of patients feeling like the rug had been pulled out from under them. A number of patients who had been previously diagnosed with Lyme disease now no longer met criteria for Lyme disease or would no, no longer be able to get treatment for Lyme disease if it was a new case, if they didn't test fully positive. This again is Brian Fallon from Columbia University's Tick Disease Research Lab. And so doctors in the community who were seeing a lot of these patients and knowing that antibiotics could be helpful to these patients uh, were being told that they were doing bad things by giving patients antibiotics uh, for a flu-like illness if there was no rash and that person came from a Lyme endemic area. And even if, even if there was a tick bite, sometimes they would get into trouble for giving antibiotics. Given the years of unreliable tests, the many years it took to discover the cause of Lyme disease, and the mistakes that were made along the way, an understandable thicket of distrust had crept over Lyme since 1975. I think it is an error to assume that one's own test and only one's own test is uh, the final arbiter of who does and who does not have Lyme disease and discount results from other good laboratories. So after the meeting in Michigan, there was a demand for alternative testing that bucked the new recommendations. And this is maybe the biggest reason that the Dearborn meeting failed to solve the testing problem. Labs didn't have to use them. Most tests for tick-borne diseases follow standards set 25 years ago when less was known about the diseases. This can often lead to misdiagnosis. Serological testing isn't FDA-regulated. And since the time of the Dearborn meeting, a handful of labs have continued to offer tests that are not endorsed by the CDC. The most popular of these laboratories is called Igenix. It's based in California. For over 25 years, Igenix has been at the forefront of research and development of diagnostics. From their advertising, you might be under the impression that labs like Igenix offer special tests that are unlike any others in medicine. This isn't really the case. Mostly what they do is run the same tests, but interpret the results differently, moving the cutoff point for what's considered positive. Brian Fallon wanted to know how these specialty labs compare when it comes to diagnosis. 
So he did a study that sounds a lot like the one done in 1992. We sent serum out to four different labs, uh, and we had controls as well. And we divided up the serum into the four tubes and sent them out to four different labs just to see what the uh, reproducibility of the results were from lab to lab. He sent in samples from patients who had post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome and from healthy patients with no history of Lyme at all. And what he found was that the so-called specialty labs had way more false positives. The labs themselves were anonymous, so I don't know if Igenix was one of them. Uh, my study has been critiqued, saying, well, how do you know those were false positives? How do you know that those people didn't at one point have uh, infection uh, with the uh, Lyme spirochete, uh, but didn't recognize it and didn't develop a full-blown illness? Let's pause here and think about that. I mean, really think about it. Because that criticism, it's the ultimate catch-22. And I've got to say, there is a logic to it. How do you know any test is a good test? How do you test the test? And then, how do you test the test that tests the test? The criticism that you're talking about, that how do you know that they didn't have an infection, in some ways, there's no, there's no way you'll ever know. It's like, that's the black box. That, that's that, right. that, that criticism could be lobbed against literally... Any study, no matter how tightly you try and design it, there is a certain element of, well, you can't know, but you've got to do the best with what you can. That's right. The Dearborn criteria just got an update this summer, the first in 25 years. But the tests are still really unreliable in the first couple weeks of an infection. They are backed by the best science available. But critics have a point, too, that the best science still isn't 100%. And there's a certain amount we'll never really know for sure. There will always be people on the margins. So how do you know when you've taken your dose of healthy skepticism too far? Uh, My name's Sam Shore, Associate Clinical Professor, George Washington University, Chair of the Loudoun County Lyme Commission, and the Media Past President of ILADS, International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. ILADS is a body of doctors, naturopaths, and advocates that are to one degree or another in the alternative camp of people focused on chronic Lyme disease. One school of thought feels that this is easily identified and easily treated, whereas there, I believe in others that one out of every other individual presenting with bona fide real active Lyme disease may be told they don't have it. Dr. Shore doesn't just believe that the tests are bad during the first few weeks of infection, which they are. He goes further and says the tests are no good, they can't be trusted, that every negative test is a possible case of Lyme disease. There are a couple states here locally, Virginia and Maryland, who have passed laws requiring clinicians who order tests for Lyme disease communicate to the patients that if the test is negative, it doesn't necessarily rule it out, that if they are still ill, they ought to continue seeing their clinician. I bet you some doctors don't like that. (laughs) Uh, You're right. (laughs) They don't want to be dictated to. But unfortunately, a lot of clinicians misinterpret saying this rules out Lyme disease. I was on, on the Virginia Governor's Task Force for Lyme disease several years ago, and one of the position statements we made was there is no test that can absolutely rule out Lyme disease. Again, there's a certain logic to this. When it comes to people who have had Lyme for weeks or months, the tests are thought to be 98% accurate. That still misses 2%. But while there is a certain logic to doubt, 
if you take it too far, you can wind up in a feedback loop. Dr. Shore explained to me that given the right signs and symptoms, he would move ahead with antibiotics, even with a negative test. This in itself is not necessarily outside CDC recommendations. After all, the antibody tests are not helpful with early Lyme. What I would do is give a trial, perhaps a 30-day trial of doxycycline or the equivalent, and see how they responded to that. If they started to feel better or, frankly, if they started to feel worse, which often occurs early on in the process, uh, those are clinical features that would be supportive of the diagnosis. If they started to feel better or worse. Lyme disease has been called the great imitator because it can mimic so many other conditions. Dr. Shore doesn't want to miss a single case, so he's casting a wide net. And I suspect he's likely to catch some of the folks that would have otherwise fallen through the cracks. But I also suspect he's going to catch a lot of people who don't have Lyme disease at all. Because Lyme is not the only great imitator out there. Here is a list of other diseases that have been given the very same nickname. Fibromyalgia. Psoriatic arthritis. Lupus. Sarcoidosis. Multiple sclerosis. Celiac disease. Addison's disease. Pulmonary embolism. Syphilis. Nocardiosis. Tuberculosis. Brucellosis. Malaria. Intravascular large B-cell. Intravascular large B-cell lymphoma. You see what I'm getting at here? Lime World is a place where doubt has run amok. Where someone with a set of unusual symptoms on the far end of the Lyme bell curve, or any bell curve for that matter, can go to a specialty doctor, who will probably err on the side of Lyme disease, send their blood to a specialty lab with a history of false positives, treat them even if it's negative, and then confirm their diagnosis, regardless of whether or not the patient feels better or worse. This is a disease that is both over and under-diagnosed. The sort of place where people are likely to be confused and desperate and angry. The perfect place for someone to step in and offer solutions that seem a little too good to be true. Lasers, lasers are by far the most incredible health tool that have been invented in the last, probably forever. The laser has an infinite number of applications in terms of healing. That's next time on Patient Zero. Patient Zero is produced and reported by me, Taylor Quimby. Projects like this one take time and resources. If you like what you hear, consider making a $20 donation at patientzeropodcast.org. You'll get early access to future episodes, ad-free, and some bonus episodes as well. Editing help for this episode came from Annie Ropeek, Jason Moon, Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Nick Capadice. Sam Evans-Brown is Patient Zero's senior producer. Erica Janik is executive producer. Fact-checking for this episode by Amy Tardiff. Graphics by Sarah Plord. Maureen McMurray is director of content. Special thanks to the numerous folks who recorded voices for this episode, and a huge thank you to the listeners who generously sent in their Lyme stories. If you've got questions, concerns, or comments about Patient Zero, we want to hear from you email us at patientzero at nhpr.org. Patient Zero's theme was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Additional music from Jason Moon, Blue Dot Sessions, and Disasterpiece. Credit music by Deerhoof. Patient Zero is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 